Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 16th, 2023. Over the weekend, we did an interesting show with a a Barnard College professor, uh, Premila Nadison, on what she calls the care economy as the highest stage of capitalism. Uh, it's a new book out. Of course, it's a play on Lenin's famous uh, book about uh, imperialism being the highest stage of capitalism. But really, she was talking about American capitalism and particularly American healthcare capitalism, when we talked about some of the cultural and economic contradictions of COVID, it often seems to me as if COVID is a kind of Rorschach test when it comes to making sense of American society and capitalism. And we're doing another show uh, on uh, COVID and the American response to it, appropriately enough, perhaps called The Big Fail, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind. It's by two authors, two very distinguished American authors, Jonas Sira and Bethany McLean. I'm actually talking to Joe later this week, and we're talking to Bethany now. She's in New York City. The book's out this week, tomorrow, so she's preparing for her big book party. Bethany, congratulations on the new book. Thank you for having me on the show. So, As I said, it's a kind of Rorschach test in some ways, I think, our analysis of COVID. You began this project with Joe. What surprised you about what you found? What didn't you expect to discover in this so-called big fail before you started out researching uh, American healthcare, American politics and the COVID crisis? Well, I think it was obvious from the beginning. So maybe to say it surprised me would be would be would be wrong. But I still find it the most surprising thing about COVID, and that's how our ideological um, divides manifested in our thinking about how we should respond to a pandemic. And in reality, one thing should have nothing to do with each other with the other. I mean, you could be an ardent left wing anti Trump person who nonetheless thinks that lockdowns maybe weren't the way to go, but um, they become entirely conflated and it continues to be conflated all these years later. Bethany, uh, I've always got the impression, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm I'm sure I I usually am wrong on those things, that every country got COVID wrong. Sometimes they peaked too early, sometimes they got it right at the beginning, perhaps like the Chinese, and then the crisis came later. How does America... um, how does America, uh, posi- how would you position America in the league table of, of COVID successes and failures? Are they in the middle? I'm guessing they're not at the top, or are they right at the bottom? I measured by excess deaths, which I think is the fairest way to think about this. We can all fight about what the fairest way to think about it is, but I think measured by excess deaths, then America got it pretty badly wrong. Um, Excess deaths relative to other wealthy um, Western nations. Um, I think with one exception, maybe Italy, America's excess deaths are at the highest, uh, are the highest. And that encompasses deaths from things other than COVID, deaths from from delayed cancer care, deaths from suicide. But, But the number in America is is shockingly high, especially given the amount that we spend on healthcare. You would think that would have left us with a number that was the best of everybody, not the worst. Is that the big fail, Bethany? Is that how America failed in, in terms of your history of this period? 
I, I think so. Our argument is that that the preconditions that made it difficult for America to succeed in, a, in the face of a pandemic were put in place for years before the pandemic actually actually hit. And so I think it's very it, it's a really convenient story we tell ourselves or some people tell themselves that if we had just had a president other than Donald Trump, this whole thing would have been so much better and America would have responded perfectly. And our argument is not not so fast. That's that's not really true. How does it reflect, and I'm guessing rather badly, on the, the privatized American healthcare system, which seems, again, from my point of view, as a, someone who lives in America, uh, to be simultaneously expensive, bureaucratized, and remarkably inefficient? Yeah, I think it's hard to look at the pandemic and see anything other than that. We spend a shocking percentage of our uh, GDP on healthcare, a shocking and growing percentage, and yet we don't get better health outcomes as as a result of it. And we didn't get better care, better outcomes in in the pandemic as 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 a result of it. And the entire system is is just screwed up. Even if you believe that capitalist the capitalist ethos should apply to healthcare, even if you say, I want the market to dictate who gets health care and who doesn't. The system we have does nothing to reward those who deliver the best care at the lowest cost, getting be, being being the survivors in the healthcare ecosystem. Um, it's a completely different game that 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 everybody is playing. And so I, it, it's just it's a huge part of the problem. I know you did a huge amount of research, had many conversations. I assume you talk to doctors, patients, government officials, obviously people working uh, for pharma companies. What were the conversations that most surprised you in terms of the different constituencies in the American healthcare system? I think one thing that surprised me a lot, and I still am not quite sure of the answer to this, but there, there's a law in place in American healthcare that patients are supposed to be transferred uh, to available beds. And so one thing that doesn't seem to have happened in very many places, I think Boston was an exception, was that patients in less well-off hospitals were transferred to play, to better off hospitals where there were where there were empty beds. And that was surprising to me. I would have expected um, more coordination and more caring among in, in the nation's hospital system than, than what that revealed. I think the thing that surprised me on the flip side in a really positive way was Operation Warp Speed and the way in which it, it wasn't people who wanted to support the Trump administration or who were Trumpers who, who came together to do this. Some of them did it despite their opposition to Trump, but they did it because they thought it was the right thing to do for, for, for the country. And so I think even amid uh, even amid a terrible story like the pandemic, there are these things you can point to that really show people at their best. You mentioned that along with Italy, America experienced the biggest fail in terms of the loss of life. What other reasons would explain this? What would group the US with Italy, which have different kinds of healthcare systems, different kinds of societies? Why was Italy hit so brutally so early. I've never understood that. I think it's because of the sheer number of flights between Wuhan and Italy. There's a there's a connection there. Um, um, and Italy also has a, an older population. Um, I think that's that's one piece of, of connectivity. But really, you know, the American healthcare system has been two tiered for a long, long, long time. And so COVID affected people with pre-existing conditions, pre-existing conditions that were exacerbated because of lack of access to to, to good to good health care. So COVID was really 
really a perfect storm to showcase the failings of our of our healthcare system. And you know, you might say, again, if you were a hardcore capitalist, you might say, well, you get the healthcare you pay for, and if you can't pay for it, that's your problem. But I think even if you were inclined to believe that beforehand, the pandemic shows the ultimate truth, which is that we really are all in it together. Lyndon Johnson had this great quote when he signed Medicare and Medicaid into existence, which is that without the health of our people, we can basically everything we we hope to do is 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 finished. Um, and I think that that's that's true. You need a healthy population to be to be a strong, thriving country. We're speaking with Bethany McLean, the co-author of a very important new book out. It's going to be one of the big hits of the fall, The Big Fail. It's not going to fail. Why the pandemic revealed or what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind. Uh, I, I want to talk about inequality in a minute, Bethany, but you mentioned preventative medicine. Uh, America is notorious. And again, please correct me if I'm wrong for the fact that many people are obese um, and that the there is already a sort of a, a healthcare crisis before people even get sick. Yeah. Is that what the big fail reveals as well? I think we all knew that, but the extent to which COVID preyed on people with pre-existing conditions, pre-existing conditions that to some degree are the effect of lack of access to health care, lack of access to, to healthy food, et, et cetera, et cetera, um, it, it really is remarkable and remarkably awful in in. In, in that in that respect, so I don't think it's a surprise to anybody who's looked at the American healthcare system that that's that's the way it is. But the extent of it um, uh, might be surprising. We've done many shows on the inequalities in America, the increasing cleavage between the rich and the poor, the weak and the powerful. I'm guessing that what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind reflects those pre-existing inequalities. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's a very fair statement. And you can see it in a, in a couple of places. I mean, thanks to the Federal Reserve's um, a response to the pandemic hitting, cutting interest rates to rock bottom, it really rewarded asset owners. And, you know, if you glanced at the headlines over the years during the pandemic, the rich got an extraordinary amount richer um, because stock prices went up so much and asset classes across the board just mushroomed in, 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 in value. Um, big companies, the airlines got very specifically targeted bailouts, big companies that were able to access the capital markets, um, um, big, sorry, um, big companies that were able to access the capital markets um, 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 were able, even big companies that were on the brink of failure were able to keep funding themselves. Um, and then, then on the other hand, <laughs> there were the essential workers who had to go to work. They weren't part of the Zoom class. They weren't able to lock down and have other people bring them their food and their supplies. They had to go out and, 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 go, and go to work. Um, and small businesses, um, the PPP plan helped enormously. Um, but still, small businesses got a kind of chaotic, and often non-existent aid compared to what compared to what big companies got, and then when the supply chain issues came along, that affected small companies even more. You and Joe and Sarah wrote another very interesting book um, back in 2011. All the devils are here: the hidden history of the financial crisis in the, the 2008 crisis. To what extent could economic historians, Bethany, make the COVID crisis, the next 
chapter in the crisis, maybe if not of global capitalism, certainly of American capitalism. It's so interesting that you asked that question because you know I've thought about I've I've written three three big books over my career. The first one was a book about Enron and the collapse of Enron. The second was a book All the Devils Are Here about the financial crisis, and then there's this book about the pandemic. And I think when Enron failed, I I never took an econ class. I was a math major, but I didn't take econ. And so I when I started working, uh, I just sort of accepted our our market ethos. And I thought Enron was um, an anomaly. It, it failed. Something went wrong. But but that was just an anomaly. The global financial crisis made me think, oh, this isn't an anomaly. There's there there there's a problem here. And I see now the story is not even being so much about financial crises per se. It's about an ongoing loss of faith in, in capitalism that I worry about for our for our society. Because I think each thing that happens shakes people's faith in the system a little bit a little bit more. And so if you think back, I don't know, 25 years, we've gone from primarily believing in capitalism to a lot of skepticism, particularly in the younger generation. You mentioned your Enron book uh, entitled The Smartest Guys in the Room. Of course, they were a little too smart for their own good. Were there equivalent of Enron guys in, in the COVID room in America? Were there people essentially lying, cheating for their own purposes? I mean, I think I think the stories of PPE and how difficult it was to get and the number of scams that arose is a very Enron-like story in the sense of just a complete free-for-all. Um, one that was created, the preconditions were set down by globalization and by these supply chains that became incredibly stretched and fragile, such that when everybody actually needed something, it was no longer possible for America to get the goods that it, that it needed. And we saw the limits of this globalized supply chain chain that, that, that maximize profits. But some of the stories we tell in the book about the battles for PPE and just the black market and just the crazy, crazy things that took place, um, I think that's pretty Enron-esque, yes. And what about the insurance companies? They generally get a really bad press on this stuff, as the pharma companies. We're going to talk after the break about, um, about some of the more positive uh, developments from the crisis. But in broad terms, can we be critical of, of, of insurance companies and professional doctors as well as the pharma companies? I mean, I, I don't think doctors per se. I think doctors and nurses are some of the unsung heroes of this because they showed up and did their jobs every day under immense pressure and at um, risk, risk, risk to themselves. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not critical of that part of the medical system. Um, you know, insurance companies are part of the whole, the whole screwed up ecosystem of American healthcare. We did not explicitly focus on 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 that aspect of it, but the ways in which the games between the hospital system and insurance companies um, are, are are pretty shocking as you start to investigate them because it's all about who's getting paid what, and it's not necessarily about how do we take good care of people and maximize um, the the amount of care we're getting for the dollars spent. It's astonishing, actually, thinking out loud, Bethany, that the crisis of COVID, not just the pandemic, but the economic and medical crisis didn't in any way trigger any more conversations about healthcare reform in America. Do you think that in overall terms, if you talk to ordinary Americans, that they don't think it was a big fail? 
No, I think that it that it has. There's an analyst who we quote in the book, a longtime healthcare analyst named Paul Keckley, who writes a very um, well-read newsletter about everything going on in healthcare. And he's writing a lot about the crisis of faith in the American healthcare system and the crisis of faith in in hospitals. That people are increasingly saying we we don't we don't want this. So I, I think it actually did. I think it's just that a lot of I mean a lot of what happens in the healthcare system is so wonky and frankly. Hard Hard to get interested in until you're interested. You, you, you know what I mean? And so I think it is not in, in, in the headlines, but I think there's actually a lot of political movement uh, and a lot of distress out there um, about, about, what the, about what the pandemic revealed, whether now, whether that actually amounts to anything in the end, whether anything changes. I, I mean, I'm a little more skeptical about, about that, but, but I think the distress is pretty widely felt. Do you think the political class broadly recognizes that healthcare is is the third rail after the the Clinton Obama? I don't know if the, the Obama thing was a debacle, but certainly yeah. the Clinton thing was, uh, and and Trump didn't seem to get anywhere. Do you think mostly they simply steer clear because they can only lose out of it? I unfortunately think that might be true, and the problem is that it is one of those systems in America that to fix it, you would have to rip the whole thing down. I mean, there aren't. So tinkering at the edges just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't actually do that much. And so, and I know very few people have the appetite for tearing anything down. I mean, the analogy is in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, Joe and I wrote at the end of our book that the silver lining was that we would all look at how we financed um, housing in the US and really have a conversation about housing finance and what made sense <laughs> instead over a decade Later, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are still in conservatorship, and the system of housing finance has become even more unstable and insane than it was than it was running up to uh, than it was running up to the global financial crisis. And for precisely the reason you mentioned with healthcare, no politicians want to deal with it because they start looking at it and they realize, oh, this is really complicated and really messy. And if I wade into this, I'm going to have to make some compromises and make some enemies. And uh oh, back away, back away slowly. <laughs> So we are talking with Bethany McLean, the author of a co-author of a wonderful new book, The Big Fail. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor uh, for this show, uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. All our guests are going to get an annual subscription. It's an excellent new publication. Going to run a short uh, ad for Liberties. And I want to come back with Bethany and talk about some of the more positive stories uh, in The Big Fail. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Bethany McLean, the co-author of The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind. So far, our conversation has been miserable. It's going to uh, make people even more depressed about the American economy and the healthcare system. But it's not all misery. Of course, there was Operation Warp Speed, which uh, Bethany and Joe write about. What do you make of this? Is this an advertisement for the market, the free market and American innovation, Bethany? 
In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So I've become a bit of a skeptic about the idea that there is such a thing as a totally free market. Even the most free market aficionados rely on things like a limited liability corporation or bankruptcy court. In other words, even the free market is governed by the laws laid down by, by society. So, so take that as a precondition. But one of the things that I, I, I love about the Warp Speed story is that it is a public-private partnership that worked because the government saw what they needed from, from corporate America that they couldn't do, and corporate America saw what it needed from the government, which, which they couldn't do. And so so people inside the, the administration, namely Alex Azar, the, the, the um, Secretary of Health and Human Services, and a few other people realized that the pharma company's incentives were never going to be to make a vaccine and make a vaccine quickly. It wasn't the way big pharma was, was set up. And back the vaccine business isn't one that Wall Street rewards because there have been too many cases in history where companies have raced to produce a vaccine only to find that it wasn't necessary and they've lost a ton of money on it. And even if it is necessary, um, it's not a medicine that's given repeatedly in, in the way that Wall Street likes. It's governments are the buyer. And so they saw that, wait, we need to do something. If we're going to produce a vaccine really, really quickly, we need to create a market so that, so that companies will be incentivized to make the vaccine. And because so much manufacturing, again, has been outsourced to other countries, if we need to make this vaccine here, we need to engage in this massive logistical um, enterprise in order to get all the stuff we need here in America in order to manufacture these, these vaccines. And so someone um, said to me that this isn't really a science story, it's an industrial manufacturing story. And it, and, it, and it is. And it took this really interesting cooperation between people who came from the private sector um, to run this and the U.S. Army um, and, people, and people in government. And that's the reason that the U.S. had vaccines before before anybody else, and I, I think it's a I think it's a remarkable story of how business and government can can work together. Now, was everything perfect? And can we um, argue about the way the pricing was set on the vaccines? Sure, but nonetheless, we had the vaccines, um, and that was the first moment of hope um, for many people in this terrible this terrible time. In the earlier twenty first century, Bethany, there's often competition between the Chinese and the American model of innovation, development, uh, centralization. Does the, the proof of the, the relative success of, of warp speed, does it point to the, uh, the, more, the, the, the viability of the American model over the centralized Chinese model, who are, after all, were also uh, in the business of trying to find, uh, if not a cure, certainly a, a vaccine? Well, I think it does. And it, 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 the without a, a longtime pharmaceutical an analyst said to me, without the American system for all its inefficiencies and its waste, we wouldn't have the vaccines because it took all this investment over previous decades and technologies that were unproven, but then met the moment um, when 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 COVID happened. And so, uh, the answer to what is happening is nowhere near as simple as get rid of the market and get rid of and get rid of market incentives and substitute a planned. A planned economy for that. I I don't believe that at least, and I think, I think the I think the the availability of the mRNA vaccines shows that that this creativity and innovation that is a a good hallmark of the American system is 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 actually there. 
I just think that we have to be very careful and government has to be careful about what sort of rules it's, it's setting down. Because in the end, as I said earlier, there is no such thing as a free market. It's all the, the government sets down the rules. So let's set down the right rules. Yeah. I, does anyone really think there is a free market anymore? Are there still any Friedmanites left? I, I think there are. I think there are. I don't know. I mean, even me. in the medical tech business. I mean, I know you write a lot about the logistical complexity of of warps of warp speed. Um, one of the things that intrigues me is a lot of the people involved weren't even American. A lot of the companies involved weren't American. How did it all somehow congregate in America? Why was it America leading and not Italy or Austria or Germany? Well, I think because um, the companies that were furthest along with mRNA technology, uh, Moderna um, was a startup that was created here and was a controversial startup, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people weren't sure that Moderna was ever going to make anything of value, but people funded it because the American system um, 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 does that. And then Pfizer is a U.S. company, and Pfizer wouldn't have been as far ahead in mRNA if it hadn't been for a partnership with, with a company called BioNTech. Tech, which is not a U.S. company, but it was Pfizer that was able to bring the manufacturing might and muscle in order to in 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 order in order in order to get this done. Um, the guy who ran Operation Warp Speed, Monsef Slawi, is an immigrant. He was not he was not born in in in, in the U.S. So I think um, the guy who ran the man manufacturing, um, Carlo De Noter Stefani, is Italian. So I think it also shows what people were willing to do for the country that 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 became theirs. And and I think that there's there's it, for all the bad parts about human nature that might have been on display in the pandemic. This was, I think, a really, a really beautiful one. Trump, if he runs again or as he's running again, seems to be wanting to double down on immigration. Um, was there any recognition for him or anyone who worked with him of the importance of immigrants in terms of warp speed and America never... becoming a leader in, in the vaccine? I've never heard anybody acknowledge that, um, and it's interesting. Um, Nubara Fan, who um, is the, the 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 founder of the venture capital firm that seeded Moderna originally, is an immigrant. Mansaf Slawi, Carlo, uh, the people I've mentioned, I I this this easy dismissal of of immigrants is just astounding and appalling to me. What about Jared Kushner? He sees control. He's a bit of a player. He's not probably particularly popular amongst <laughs> our audience, but did anyone close to Trump, did they come out of this with any kind of credit or was, 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 was Kushner playing to his father-in-law in the gallery? You know, it's it's hard for me to say. I have not done the in-depth reporting on other parts, other aspects of Kushner that other people have done. What I know is the warp speed story, and the people who were involved in warp speed actually came away from it with a favorable impression of of Kushner, because he enabled it to to work and gave it air cover and stood behind it and um, let them gave them the space to to execute the way the way they saw fit. So people whose politics would not be inclined to be supportive of Trump came away from the warp speed experience um, with respect for Kushner. So, you know, we all, we, it, but, but that's, that, that my, my knowledge of him is, is really limited to that. And there are a lot of people who know a lot more about perhaps less appealing aspects of his personality than, than I do. It seems as if one of the reasons why it succeeded was because people got above politics. They refused to let their animosity to Trump and 
certainly uh, he's not a particularly popular man amongst scientists and investors. It didn't let them distract or interfere with their commitment to finding the vaccine. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. The people who worked on Warp Speed were not doing this to glorify Trump or the Trump administration. They were doing this because it was the right thing for the country. Do you think that if he runs again or as he runs again, if he debates Joe Biden again, which I don't think any of us are particularly looking forward to, <laughs> he will use COVID as an example of the efficiency of his administration? I mean, I don't I don't see how he he could. Um, I don't see how he could. I in my view, Trump. Trump failed as a leader in, in warp speed. And maybe when you say, how did he fail as a leader? Making somebody feel like there was an adult in charge of what was in, in charge of what, what, what was happening. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't see how he could run on his warp speed record. That said, um, part of the point of the book is that this this wasn't easy. And there were, even though the two periods obviously aren't directly comparable, there were more deaths in the first year of the Biden administration than there were in the last year of the Trump administration from, from COVID. And so it wasn't as simple as replacing an incompetent, pre uncaring president with a competent and caring one, or the numbers would be would be dramatically different. So I'm, I, 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 I don't think, and I don't think by the way, that, that those numbers are a, a knock on, on, on Biden necessarily either. I just think it was a really hard problem to fix. I wonder, was there ever a debate? I mean, publishers always like to choose their own titles with <laughs> some eye to sales, of course. Um, I mean, it, it could have equally be called the big success, couldn't it? Did you fight <sighs> to have a book? called The Big Fail? When you sold the book, was it called The Big Fail? No, I'm terrible at titles. And so the title, frankly, was 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 not mine. Um, but it does say a lot of, I mean, not not all titles do, but this this one does say a lot about assumptions on, on reading this book. Yeah, I don't think you could title America's pandemic response a big success. I think we would have had to come out of this with a unified country um, with a little bit more um, with with different figures on the excess deaths in order to call it a big success. Finally, uh, Bethany, I know you got to go to your party to celebrate <laughs> the new book, the big success or the big fail, whatever you decide <laughs> to call it. Thank you. Um, I remember, I mean, we all remember COVID and that's all anyone talked about. Like today, what anyone's talking about is Gaza and Israel and then next week it will be something else. Do you think that COVID really changed anything about America? It seems to me as if it hasn't. The America of 2023 doesn't seem that dramatically different from the America of 2019. Um that's 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 a good question. I think I've become a little more skeptical that these big events that we think are earth shaking and are going to change things actually result in in much change at all. I do think this there's this glacial recognition that that the healthcare system is really screwed up and given that it is on such an unsustainable path, something does have to happen there at some point, but it might get a lot worse um, before be, before it gets better. I think America's fiscal situation is is a lot more fragile um, as a result of the pandemic than it than it was than, than it was beforehand, particularly in an era of higher and, and rising interest rates. And so all of these things, um, all of these things may create pressure points that materialize sooner or later. But you know what? They may not. <laughs> and we may just continue to totter on. Great material for another book with Joe. And, and finally, finally, Bethany, one thing that you would like people to learn from this book and that America broadly, the American political 
military, uh, medical, industrial complex could have learned from this thing? I think that we have these failings that everybody recognizes are failings and the, the world seems destined to find our weaknesses and put its, put its finger on them. And that certainly was the pandemic. It was the global financial crisis. And so there's this idea per your last question that we don't have to do anything that we can just totter on. But these events that happen do seem to be poking their fingers right in our fragile spots. And so if there are problems, um, we should fix them sooner rather than later.